Welcome to season two of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, burnout survivor, behavior change scientist, and TEDx speaker. Please take a moment to watch my TEDx talk. The YouTube link is in the show description, and my talk is called How to Stop Burnout Before It Starts. On this podcast, I interview international burnout experts, HR and DEI leaders, and lifestyle coaches to find out how we can create individual, organizational, and cultural change to prevent burnout. When mums thrive, the world benefits. Last week, Dr. Kate Murray, a psychology professor focused on equity and inclusion, spoke a lot about systems change. We can all agree the system is broken for working mums, especially in the US. There are social expectations to be a super mum, but no government support for childcare or paid leave. There is the expectation to work like you have no kids and parent like you have no job. Yet the maternal wall and the motherhood penalty exist. They are systematic biases and stereotypes built into the system by society, caused by lack of objective criteria and processes, which are then reinforced by market rates. Lack of reward and workplace injustice are major contributors to burnout, identified by Dr. Christine Maslach. And the system at home is broken for many couples who do not share the parenting load equally. This lack of equality in the home within an outwardly democratic society contributes to parental burnout, according to Dr. Isabel Roskam's 52 country study. So the system at all levels is broken. Despite this becoming very apparent during the pandemic, most leaders in organizations and government believe that there is no pay or promotion gap and seem to think that corrective action is somehow not fair, even though the system as it exists is not fair. They seem to believe that these problems were resolved in the 1970s. And this status quo drives me insane. And since they're not systematically addressing the problem, collecting data, they can deny the problem exists. So it's really depressing, right? And what I've discovered is when you point this out to women, many women feel disempowered. They don't want to be a victim of the system. They believe if they work hard, harder than anyone around them, they will succeed. And yes, you might succeed, but at what cost? When you get to the table, you might be burned out or have experienced other illnesses as Deepa Perthelman found in her book, The First, The Few, The Only, or as Reshma Sanjali found in her book, Pay Up, women in technology could not reach the upper echelons because their pathways were blocked by bias and stereotypes. So again, sorry, really depressing. And again, a fact that most leaders and parents deny. Kim Kardashian's recent call for women to get off your butts and work harder symbolizes this status quo. And this status quo drives me insane. And I'll admit, before my burnout, I was working with exactly the same mindset. I worked harder than anyone and succeeded against the odds. And when women came to me trying to understand why only men's voices were being heard, why they were being called aggressive or paranoid, why they missed out on opportunities, my response was work harder. I blamed myself for my failures. So I also thought they were to blame for theirs. Work harder, I said, and you'll get there. Even if it takes you longer, you'll bring more to the table when you arrive. More empathy for those who, like you, are struggling. 
I believe this, but what? Bullshit. Afterwards, I saw it was a lie. You'll arrive burned out, having compromised on your values and resentful as hell, or at least I did. So changing the system is really important to me. Yet I know it's so challenging. But I thought Kate Murray's approach to changing the system was so hopeful, so empowering. She told us to simply ask, what can I do from where I am? This can be applied to how you try to change the system in that each individual can make choices to change something within their control that impacts the system. But it also applies to taking back control of your priorities, your workload, and your life. Many women who I've worked with have to press a reset button on what they're doing to prevent burnout. It then allows them to take back control and then see more clearly what is still out of their control. And they may still change their job, but at least from a position of power and choice, not running out the door with their hair on fire like I did. So let's hear some of Kate's message again. Then I'll talk about what to give up at work, i.e. the unpaid work, the overgiving, which does not help our careers and leads to burnout, all while still considering that when we act in counter-stereotypical ways, we can be penalized. This is where yes and assess can help. So here's Kate's advice. I think I try to inject that in the systems where I have any control or power. I set those expectations with my staff in terms of putting boundaries around work. And if you're being paid for 20 hours, then do 20 hours of work. I really try to make that explicit in any relationship where I have the power to control that. That's probably the hardest thing for me to do anyway, is to find the space to not just be reactionary, to set that weekly agenda of these are my priority items. These are the things I want to get through. How do I create that agenda for myself rather than open my email inbox and say, oh, someone else has created my agenda. So I guess I always come back to that sort of mantra that these are huge, massive issues and there's really no shortage of complex, messy stuff that we're facing in the world today. But that question of what can you do where you are with whatever skills or resources you have. The bigger the systems get, the harder and I guess the more difficult change feels. So I keep coming back to what can I do? And I think a piece of that is tracking and knowing where you're at. If we don't track it, it's like it doesn't exist. And I guess for me as an academic, that where I can create change is in my classroom. So in the curriculum that I teach and the types of information that I'm putting forward to uh, the students in my class. Teaching is, is probably where I have the most control. So a huge part of my work has been around revising curriculums and, and revising what we're teaching. So we do have a very narrow view in, in psychology in terms of most intro psych books. You go through a long list of esteemed white men who have shaped our understanding, but there's a whole host of other people who've done really important, meaningful work, women and people of color and people from all over the world. And, and so a big part for me is that curriculum needs to share 
that diversity. I also hope that through curriculum changes that more students see themselves represented within those professions. It is our collective responsibility to identify where we do have power and control and where we can make those incremental changes. And it can be about anything, right? It doesn't have to be about equity that we all need to work to identify how we're contributing to that system positively or negatively. And, and to recognize that each of us making change creates larger movements. Because I do believe that most societal change happens from those small groups of people who are putting that ball in motion. I want to do what I can where I am in, in whatever way that looks like. And I guess that's how I manage my own anxiety. Concern is trying to move into more action. So think about that. Who are you? What are your skills? What do you bring to the table? And what do you want to do with that? Oh, her calm presence gives me chills. Okay, so what can us hotheads do? Number one, stop being the office party organizer. It's such an important one. Yes, it might get you seen. Yes, it might demonstrate your organizational skills. But as a colleague in academia discovered, if you're known for organizing parties, not your research skills, then it's not going to lead to more collaborations, grants, publications, or promotions. Sure, if you want to gain skills in event coordination, then do it. But it doesn't usually give you the opportunity to connect with leadership that you think it will. And if it does, they see you as the party girl, not the proficient researcher, marketeer, or systems analyst. They don't take you seriously. And such events are so time-consuming with zero reward. There are people whose job it is to do this. This is not your job. You can be supportive by making a referral to an expert. If they don't want to pay for an outside company to help, then clearly it's not a priority. Everything has a cost. And at the moment, the cost is probably your mental and physical health. I remember a student being asked to organize a seminar. She was an advanced graduate student, had organized many large-scale meetings, and did not need this experience. She recommended a more junior male student. She was asked again to organize the seminar. She had to say no three times, and I continued to support her to say no. It's not easy, but she was clear. This will not contribute to the work I am paid to do. Number two, stop doing other office administrative tasks. This is one that weighs down a lot of physicians and other client-based services. Because of the strain such tasks put on physicians, the National Academy of Medicine burnout guidelines includes reducing such tasks through additional staffing or technology. One colleague would schedule her own patients, but the men in her department used an assistant to do this. This is where you have to make the problem someone else's for the system-wide action to be taken. If you keep doing these tasks on top of your normal work hours, then you're not spending your time using your most important skills. And leaders do not see that they have any problem that needs solving. When my colleague started using the assistant to schedule her patients, the assistant was properly able to convey to leadership that more help was needed. Patients pay, so getting them scheduled was a priority for leadership. Make sure you're not doing tasks for which someone else is equally or more qualified, that the company will readily pay for or find technical solutions for. If we don't push back and set boundaries around our time, using our time to focus on our core 
billable skills, then we become less valuable to the organization. Number three, stop serving on committees or unpaid ERGs. This is one of the biggest hurdles for women in academia. Committee service is usually a requirement for promotion, although some universities see it differently. For example, at the Harvard Kennedy School, Dr. Iris Bonnet pays faculty for their university and community service in addition to their teaching and research roles. Recently, I asked a professor who was struggling to meet her research goals and who was clearly burning out. How many committees are you on? Four including being chair of probably more than one. And I bet she contributes to those committees greatly and is an awesome chair. But the requirement for promotion is one committee. And leadership can be demonstrated within your field by being invited, for example, as a speaker. Chairing a committee is a wasted leadership opportunity with no potential for broader recognition. I know it sounds Machiavellian to make every decision based on its impact, But that is exactly what I recommend companies do. Focus only on the tasks that have impact on your bottom line to prevent burnout. So as an individual, your bottom line is also preventing burnout, your own, and being rewarded appropriately for your work. In companies, ERGs compose a similar problem. You may serve on an ERG because you're passionate about a specific cause and want to help others suffering from this issue. But if this cause is not valuable enough, to your organization, for them to pay for your time to support it, whether that is in pay, promotion, or reallocation of workload, then they do not deserve your support. So often women of color are expected to serve without pay, often in a token role and as the only woman of color. Often they're expected to represent all women and all women of color, and often with the pressure of solving wide-scale systematic problems without appropriate resources and they feel the pressure to act as a role model who made it to the table. These stresses are immense, it's lonely, and these are not the conditions that lead to fulfillment. Service and supporting others can be a core value we hold, although it can also be a societal expectation and stereotype that we are unaware is in our programming, but people-pleasing and overgiving can lead to burnout. That's not to say if your cup is full, and you're in a season when you can give, then great, please give. But if you are overextended and resentful, then it's time to resign from these committees. People resign from their commitments all the time. Will you be seen as less committed? But committed to what? Is what you are working on really contributing to a mission you value? Colleagues who have given up extra roles and committed to the minimum realize no one even notices that they are doing less. Seriously, what you're doing in these non-essential roles is not valued. It is not noticed. If you give it up, no one will notice. Most people around you are too busy focusing on furthering their own careers. A key way to work out what is the minimum is to run it through a mediocre man filter, as suggested by Dr. Lara Kaur. It works. A colleague recently was reviewing 30 books as part of her book proposal. It was slowing down her completion of her proposal, naturally. So I asked, how many would a mediocre man review as part of this process? Two, she said, straight away, exactly. She knew straight away that answer. So fine, double it, because often we have to do two and a half times as much work to succeed. But don't do it 10 times over. 
And on this topic, ask yourself this, would a mediocre man feel guilty for not volunteering? No, it would not have even crossed his mind again after saying no. So you shouldn't feel guilty either or expend your valuable time on ruminating or beating yourself up for not volunteering. Okay, so we know the stereotypes persist. How do you avoid being penalized for saying no when as a woman, you're expected to be compliant? One strategy that can help is yes and assess. Say you'll consider the opportunity, give it a go, and report back whether it is something you want to commit your valuable time to. Make sure you schedule the review meeting and keep asking, why is this a priority? And how is its value operationalized? This is a sophisticated, show me the money speech. When you do say no, you will likely have to say no at least three times. So keep practicing and keep asking, which of my priorities should I give up to do this? And why should it be a priority for me? You can even ask, what benefits will it bring to me or my team? And how will you demonstrate those benefits? You definitely have to have stock sentences prepared and practice to see which ones feel good and which are well received. If you are stuck in a service role that is not being recognized, then make sure you think about ways to elevate its importance. Again, women are penalized if they self-promote, but if you create a best practice guide or a lessons learned guide and share it with others, including key le leaders, this is a stealth way to self-promote. Or send an email to leaders saying, I just wanted to give you the opportunity to recognize the hard work me and my team have put into this event We'll be taking two paid time off days in recognition of this extra effort. But if you have any ideas for other ways, the organization can recognize this commitment to our work, blah, blah, blah. Again, it's going to feel cheesy at first. But if you say nothing, you'll definitely get nothing. And while you may be penalized for saying something, you're already being penalized anyway for being a woman or a mom. So at least have given yourself the chance for a positive outcome. Okay. So I also recognize this. Not only can volunteering make us feel good, but we also know it helps make organizations function, such as schools. You feel you can't say no. What if everyone said, F it? Well, if everyone stopped, the system would have to change. Women in Iceland protested equal pay in the 80s. For a whole day, they did nothing and the system changed. Our compliance actually creates complicity. So support other women to say no and perhaps make an agreement together to say no. And while you're probably doing an amazing job leading an unpaid initiative, you're not the only person who could do this. That's your ego talking and it's your martyr role and your need to be needed. Oh, and I know that. But someone else's less than good approach is probably totally sufficient. Are you really helping when you overgive or overcommit? I was not a better leader when I took on too much leadership. And are you even taking away opportunities for others to rise, to use their skills, however imperfectly in your mind? And please don't step in when they mess up. It's no longer your problem. So your hour, no matter how much you get paid, is as valuable as anyone else's hour. Your time is not less valuable because you're paid less. Everyone has the same 24 hours a day. You don't have more time than your partner to do all the tasks you do at home. Eve Brodsky's book, Fair Play, taught me this. And I stopped thinking that I had to do more because I was paid less and started noticing that I didn't have more time just because I chose to give myself less time.
I'm so proud of the women who've realized they're living a lie and who are now saying, I'm going to stay for now, but I'm only going to focus on the bare essentials. I'm going to take back my weekends and my evenings. I'm going to keep getting paid, but I'm going to use my work hours to skill up, to get professional coaching and to work out where I go from here. If your company or your organization is contributing to your burnout, they don't deserve to have your time, let alone your spare time. You can take back control of what you choose to spend your time on. So a key in this whole process is tracking. Track how often you say yes and how often you say no every time. Every little yes and every big no. This will help you see how often you say yes without even realizing it. Seriously, this will take some paying attention to. How often do you say, oh, I can do that? Or not even that, just doing it without even being asked. So start to track everything you do and how long it takes. It will take a while to set up the Excel file at first because your list is going to be so damn long, but it will get easier. So start tracking and do it for at least a month to reveal the patterns and to make the time investment worth it to set up the file. Then you'll see that you say yes too often and you're asked to do more too often. No wonder you're frazzled. It's ridiculous. This was such an important revelation for me. It helped me own my decisions and see I was not a victim. Yes was a choice I was making, however unconsciously. Once you have your shit list, then start to give ratings to what you do. Is this essential to your goals or your organization's goals? Is it even impactful? Is this out of obligation? Do you enjoy it? And by how much out of 10? Once you get a better picture, you can start to set yourself targets. I know a colleague who did a year of no's and she still rose to department chair. How about three no's for every yes or any yes to 10 out of 10 activities? Not only do you have to stop taking on less valuable work, you probably need to let go of 30% of what you're doing. Four committees, only do one. That's a 75% reduction. Let go of non-essential tasks. And while you're figuring out what is essential, you'll start to realize what is important to you and to your organization, which will help you have those discussions about why you're saying no. And as you start to make clearer, more conscious decisions, you'll be able to track and see the change resulting in a greater sense of control and maybe even purpose. You need to protect the asset. But to do that, you have to start to value yourself as an asset. Kate was very purposeful with her time. She set her own agenda. She chose teaching as the place she could best control changing the system. She didn't need the rest of the system to approve it or align to it. She just needed to change the course content to be more inclusive and students changed how they saw themselves. When you consciously make a decision to give up unpaid work, you too are changing the system. I know I'm being directive here, telling you what to do, which I hate, but hopefully you can also see this as a permission slip to do less and as a reinforcement of your true value. Good luck. You are so worth it. Thank you so much for listening today. Please take a moment to watch my TEDx talk. The YouTube link is in the show description and my talk is called How to Stop Burnout Before It Starts.
If your organization needs to kickstart its burnout efforts with an inspiring keynote, I can talk about my story, the science behind burnout, and the science and practice of preventing burnout. From my own experience, my podcast guests, and my public health behavior change multi-level approach. Are you worried about your employees burning out? Are you losing some of your best talent, but you're too exhausted and burned out yourself to solve this problem? Are you concerned that any efforts you will make will be wasted? I understand. Would you like a clear roadmap for solving burnout and DEI challenges in one that you can adjust to your company culture? I can provide a strategic plan of evidence-based solutions matched to your needs and a blueprint process to implement them in your workplace to improve psychological safety, reduce burnout and turnover, and ensure that your company remains a fair and value-driven company for thriving employees, where you are also no longer burned out and instead can effectively support others. The best kickstart is through a keynote. So just contact me through my website at drjacquelinecur.com. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious mental health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Control your affairs.